Our sermon today is taken from Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 22. This is the word of God. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. That is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Thus says the Lord. Thank you, Kelly. All right, friends, we're going to continue in our series of the book of Ecclesiastes, and today we're going to cover all of chapter 3 because I find it to be one uh, uh, of thought flow. And so far, what we've seen through every part of Ecclesiastes is, is Solomon hunting us down, right? He does. He hunts us down uh, into this little make-believe world that we so often want to hide in, and he just brutally grabs us out of those make-believe worlds and throws us into the real world with all its hard realities. That's been his MO so far, and this time it's no different. Let me just, quick reminder of, 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 of the whole book. First section of the book, <coughs> which is our first sermon, is Solomon tells us, stop believing in the lie that at the end of your life, you're going to have this one big pile of gain waiting for you, okay? To live like that is a lie. Everything that you own will eventually cycle away. Just give it enough years. It'll cycle away. Accept that. When you accept that, you'll finally be able to stop living for that illusionary pile of gain at the end of the road, and you'll start going to be able to live for God. Second section of the book, our second sermon, Solomon tells us, stop believing 
in the law that there exists this container on earth that's airtight enough that's going to be able to contain happiness long term. It just doesn't exist. No version of yourself, no version of your life is going to be able to, ha- to be that container that can always keep you happy and never keep you sad. Okay, Life under the sun, mostly for the most part, is going to be enduring suffering. Because why? This earth is not your home. It's not your home. So instead of trying to make your primary goal in life to avoid suffering, rather than avoiding suffering, anticipate it. Okay, and immediately obey God in the midst of it until you reach your true home. Now, the first, the third section of the book, which is our third sermon today, here's the hard truth. Solomon tells us, you're actually not as in control of your life as you think you are. You're not. You try really hard to be, but you never have been, and you never will. God is, whether you like it or not. Accept that fact. If you accept the reality of that hard truth, you're going to stop narrating your own life, and finally, you're going to be able to let God be king over it. Accept that truth. You'll grow to become wise and an obedient child of God who can skillfully navigate through this ever-changing, complex life. Three things I want to point out our sermon today. Point one, a wise man lets God narrate. Point two, because they trust in his righteousness. And point three, because they realize that they are loved. Thank you. I feel very loved right now. This water. <coughs> Point one. A wise man lets God narrate because they trust in his righteousness and realize that they are loved. All right, let's go. Point one. A wise man lets God narrate. Verse one starts with Solomon setting the stage for the rest of the chapter. Okay? For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter. For everything, there's a season and a time for every matter. That sounds obvious, right? But then he explains it in verses 2 to 8. Solomon starts mentioning a bunch of different seasons of our lives in poetic form, right? A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what's been planted, a time to kill and heal, break down, build up, weep, laugh, etc., etc. A few things to note about the poem. One, it's absolutely random. It's, It's random. You look at the poem, there's only one moment of order. And that's the beginning of the poem, verse 2, right? Solomon starts the poem by saying uh, there's a time to be born and die. He starts off the poem of our lives by the two bookends of our lives, to be born and to die, okay? But that's about all the order we find here. After that, it's just a mess. There's no discernible pattern. Plant, pluck, kill, heal, break down, build up, weep, laugh, keep, cast away, tear, sow. No pattern, no discernible order. But that's the point, That's the point he's trying to make, that your life story is a lot more chaotic and less manageable than you think it is. Second thing about the poem is that your life story is mainly relational by nature. It's relational. What do I mean? Look at the majority of of, of things on the list. They assume relationships, a time to mourn and a time to dance. It assumes that someone's causing you to mourn or it assumes that you're dancing with somebody. It assumes a relationship. There's time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Assumes that there's people to embrace or not embrace. There's a time to keep silence and there's a time to speak. That assumes there's somebody you're speaking to. Love, hate, assumes relationships. War, peace, assumes relationships. All these assume relationships or communities in which these activities are taking place. Most of them, okay? What's the point? The point, Solomon from the get-go is trying to explain to us and convince us we're not 
as in control of the story of our lives as we think we are. It's random and it's out of control because it's relational by nature. Let me explain how those two connect. Think about your life. Think about the story of your life, the chapters in it, the moments, the seasons in your life, the big markers, okay? It's usually broken down by your relationships at a given period of time. Don't get me wrong. When I think about my timeline or when we think about our timeline, the things that move our life forward, uh, the, thing that, the things that propel it forward, we also think about non-relational events such as the day I move for college. That's a non-relational event that moved my life story forward, right? Or the day I graduated from college. Or the day I moved to a different city or got a new job. Those are non-relational events that, yes, did move my life forward. And I'll definitely circle those events with a pencil as things that move my life forward. But the momentous events that I'll circle, not just with a pencil, but with a red, thick highlighter, as life-changing, season-ending, chapter-beginning, new page-turning, propelling-forward kind of events, mostly have to do with relationships. For example... One of those days that I'm going to circle red highlight marker is the day I became a husband. You see, that's relational by nature. That, that's the really big event that really ended a season and began a new one. Another day that I'm going to really circle in bright red is the day I became a father. You see, th there's a relationship there with a new human being. Another day I'm going to circle red is the day I became a father of two. Fast forward your life a little bit. I'm going to circle the day I become a grandparent. I'm going to circle the day I lose my parents. And depending who dies first, I'm going to circle the day I lose my wife. Or if I die first, I hope she circles the day that she loses me. I'm sure she would. Right? Our, our stories move forward with non-relational things, but the big ones... The big ones that propel it forward are relationships, as Solomon mentioned. So, if my life story is mainly driven by relationships in life, and if you think about it, we really don't have as much control over those season changes in our relationships, do we? Okay, when one season ends and when one begins. We don't have much control over that. Then really, do I have that much control over our lives? One day, you may be laughing with someone, and the next day, you might be weeping over the loss of that person that you once laughed with. You never put that in your calendar. You never planned those dates. One day, you might be dancing with someone, and the next day, you might find yourself mourning the loss of that person that you once danced with. You didn't plan for that to happen. That's not in your calendar. One day, you might embrace somebody, and the next day, that person might refrain from embracing you. One day you might have peace with, peace with someone only to be surprised of how fast things can turn into a war zone. You don't plan for those to happen. Or somebody that you're in war with ended up turning into a sweet friendship. One day you might be single, another day you might be married. I mean, yes, you can put your wedding date into the calendar, but you can't put the date of when you're going to meet your spouse in a calendar. That's not in your control. One day Elena was an only child, then another day she was a big sister. She didn't decide that. She didn't control that. Yet that was a huge life changer for her. One day, you weren't even that close with your daughter. 
And the next day, your daughter has a kid, and you become a grandparent, and you're in a new season of life. And surprisingly, you begin to get closer to your daughter because she now has all these questions about how to raise a child and needs you to help out. You didn't plan for those new relationships and relational developments to happen, but, but they're huge life changers, and they do. Here's the point. If in reality, our lives primarily move forward and change in context of relationships, okay, and if in all reality, we actually don't have that much control over those relationships, ergo, we actually don't have that much control over our lives to begin with, do we? When one chapter ends and when another begins. The foolish man refuses to believe this. They refuse it. They think they're in control. The wise man sees it. Sees what? That it's actually not their fingers that are turning the pages of their lives. It's not their fingers. That's the wisdom nugget here. For the most part, someone else is calling the shots when it comes to your life moving forward in context of relationship. But that's the thing, right? We try. We try for it to be our fingers that turn the pages, and it doesn't work. That's why a lot of people end up living in the future or stuck in the past. Because they're either trying to rush certain chapters of their lives or hold on to tell you that the ones that's already ended. The young professional who always seems to be living in the future, right, says, I'll be happy when this happens, right? They want to rush God's finger to turn the pages quicker. I'll be happy when I'm out of this nine to five cubicle and begin my own business. Then after the business starts, I'll be, I'll be happy when I have less work and have a partner and a staff. And then when you have partner and staff, I'll be happy when we finally break even. And then when you break even, I'll, I'll be happy when I have a bigger profit margin. And then when you have a bigger profit margin, I'll be happy when I finally sell off the company. I'll be happy when I retire. Always living in the future. Their life mantra is, I'll be happy when. But the other side is true. There are a lot of people that are also stuck in the past, okay? If things were just as good as they were in the old days, right? The good old days, then I'll be happy again. You see this in a lot of people who refuse to grow old. They say, back when my step and skin both had some spring to it. That's when I'm happy, right? My golden days, back then, if I could just go back there, and see, even now, as I'm saying that, I'm careful to not be making eye contact with some of you because some of you are going to be thinking that I'm talking about you. But why, why is that? Why do I have that fear? Why is it so wrong to acknowledge that you're old? That's the whole point of the poem. It's okay to grow old. See, we live in a culture that idolizes youth. We see that in our media, even in our churches. If we look at the way our churches do liturgy and worship, I wonder if there's an idolizing of youth there. We refuse the old hymns, and we refuse to have high liturgical order because it feels old and outdated, despite of the robust theology and good those things can offer. We hardly know what godliness in an old age looks like because everyone's refusing to grow old. Stop fighting it, older Christians. Let God turn the pages. Let him dictate the season of your life. Lead the way and show the world what growing old godly looks like. That we may follow suit. 
See, the wise man knows how to plan for the future without idolizing it and appreciates the past without worshiping it. It's pointless. It's pointless to try and toil against God's decision of how fast or slow we move forward in our stories, the wise man says in verse 9. Because, verse 11, God has made everything beautiful in its time. But I mean, we really try. We still really try, don't we? We long for it. We long to know the bigger picture, and we long to be the one in control of our stories. God said in the middle of verse 11, Solomon said in the middle of verse 11, that God has put eternity into man's heart. We want to know the whole story. We want to have God's vantage point of eternity and be the one who decides the pace and the changes of our lives. But yet, verse 11 is true. We can't find out what God has done from beginning to end. So stop trying to run it yourselves. You don't have God's vantage point. Stop trying to narrate your own stories and simply obey him in the seasons that he's placed you in. You know, in some senses, I think a lot of our sins can be traced back to this. You know, refusing to live in the season changes that God has ordained for you. For example, why do we bribe and extort and cheat in business? We refuse to accept the fact that God may want us to enter into a season of financial difficulty. Is that a possibility? Absolutely. Okay, perhaps God at one point allowed you to experience a, a season of wealth. Great. But then for unknown forces within fluctuating global market change, all of a sudden your business isn't doing so hot. And you've gone through all the legal routes and you've tried everything and you've tried to minimize costs and you've done everything you can think of. You've talked to everybody you can think about and there is no legal route that it can answer your tough season, okay? So what do you do? You cheat, you extort, and you bribe. Because the only way to get out of the season of financial difficulty that God seems to be bringing me in is by disobeying him. We... We do it, why? Because we refuse God's hand that has decided to bring about the season of financial difficulty. I'm not saying just roll over and accept it. No, do everything you can. But if you have to break God's laws in order to remain in that season of financial abundance, then you're refusing to let God lead. And you're trying to narrate your own story. If the only option to get out of that season is to break God's commands, then perhaps you're not supposed to get out of it. If the only way to get out of that season is by breaking God's commands, then consider the fact that God doesn't want you to get out of it. Perhaps a season of financial difficulty will do your soul good. Another example. Someone can't wait to enter into a season of marriage. So much so that they can, the second they date someone, they fast forward God's timing. They talk to that person, they spend time with that person, and they touch that person in ways that only people in a season of marriage should. See, God hasn't placed you in that season yet. But you're not about to submit to God's timing. You're your own narrator. So instead of trusting and obeying God in the season of life that he's put you in, you infringe upon his rights. You give yourself the privileges that only people in the season of marriage have, although you're not in that season yet. By doing so, you're telling God, I'll decide the seasons of my life, not you. The married man who still dates around ends up being unfaithful to his wife is simply refusing to live in the season of marriage that God has placed him in. The dad of, of three or four kids who still want to be able to spend as much time advancing his career as he did when he was single ends up neglecting his family for career advancement. Why? Because he simply refuses to live in the season that God has placed him in. 
A lot of our sins can be traced back to simply refusing to live in the season God has placed you in. The wise man stops infringing upon God's right and realizes that life, here it is, life is less about trying to write your own stories and more about responding obediently to the one who has written the chapters and is turning the pages. Life is less about trying to write your own stories and it's more about responding obediently to the one who has written the chapters and is turning the pages. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that <coughs> so that people fear before him. <coughs> but why is it so hard for us? Why is it so hard for us to just simply let God turn the pages at his own pace and respond faithfully to him in every season? Why do, we need to, why do we need to rush these chapters? Why do we need to hang on to old ones? Well, I think, because deep in our hearts, we doubt that God has our best interest in mind, that he'll do right by us. The wise man lets God narrate, point two, because they trust that God is righteous. Point two. All right, in the next section of the book, <clears throat> Solomon goes a bit in a roundabout way to prove that God is righteous. But let's just follow his train of thought, okay? You know something amazing about God that we don't often think about? Look at verse 15. Is that he is beyond time. Um, to God, that which is already has been and that which is to be already has been. In other words, <coughs> he's not ignorant of the future. It has already been for him. He has a kind of vantage point about the future that we don't. But also look at verse the end of verse 15. God seeks what has been driven away. <clears throat> what does that mean? Okay, you see, there's some things in life that time has driven away, right? Names of characters in books that you've read that you knew so intimately before, you find, give it enough time, it gets driven away from your memory and it slowly fades. Most sermons that you hear slowly become a distant memory, eventually it disappears. The people you once knew so closely, now as Hozier puts it, just become somebody that you used to know. So many things are driven away by time. But God is able to seek them back. He's able to seek that which has been driven away. God is beyond time. He controls the future and the past. Now, how does Solomon prove God's righteousness through revealing his existence that is beyond time? Well, because he's about to explain how God uses all that power over time uh, and what he does it, what he uses all that ability to do. Okay, verse 16 and 17. God makes sure with his ability to control time that he, uh, he makes sure that justice is served. Verse 16 to 17. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there's a time for every matter and for every work. You know what's most painful than anything in life? is when acts of injustice slowly fade away into forgotten memory. That's the hardest, right? Undealt acts of justice, those are the hardest things to let go, aren't they? Deny parents the justice of seeing their kid's murderer dealt with. You'll never see them let it go. Deny justice to a weak party that's been abused by a stronger party. Whole communities will march with a kind of resolve that drives soldiers during war and they will not let the ones responsible off the hook. Unless, of course, 
enough time goes by. 20, 30, 50, 100 years. And now it's just a hashtag. Hashtag never forget. That's it. The energy and the resolve once laid on bringing those acts of justice into justice has been driven away by time. But there will be none of that with God, Solomon says, because God is a righteous God. He will seek that which is driven away. He will dial back the past and fetch it to the present and bring every single situation into account. He's righteous. See, in earthly courtrooms, in a place of justice and righteousness, verse 16 said, there is wickedness, but verse 17, God is righteous. Why is it so important for Solomon to establish God's righteousness here and to make sure we get that? To the reason why we often refuse to obey God, I think, in the seasons of life that he's placed us in, and the reason why we end up wanting to become our narrators is because we often doubt that God is a righteous God when he places us in these different seasons. I'm married, but I'm going to live as if I'm still in the season of singleness. I'm single, but I'm going to fast forward and treat my date as if I'm already in a season of marriage. I'm in a season of financial difficulty, but I'm going to break God's law so that I can put myself in a season of financial ease. I have kids, but I'm going to work and focus on my career as if I don't have any children. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? Because we doubt God's character, that he's good and righteous, even when you're being placed in a season of life not to your liking. So we end up worrying more about getting out of it instead of trusting and obeying him while we're in it because we doubt he's righteous and he's good. Solomon here is trying to tell us, trust him. He's good. He's righteous. Even his authority over time, he uses to uphold righteousness and justice and goodness. He's a good God. So stop trying to fight the seasons that he's given you to, even if you don't like it. Just trust and obey him during each page and every chapter because he's righteous. So, that's the secret, right? If you want to be able to obey and trust him in every season of life, you just, you just got to believe that he's righteous. And then you'll obey. Simply knowing that he's righteous will make us trust him. Right? Right? No, it doesn't. Because for most of us, we already know that God is righteous. Not many of us would argue against that. But why is it, even after acknowledging that he's righteous, we still have a hard time trusting and obeying him in the seasons of our lives that's hard? Why is that? Why is it when God places us in hard seasons, our immediate thought, if you're anything like me, it's not this. It's not, let's trust and obey him during this time. Because surely a righteous God has my best interest in mind. That's not our thought, usually, right? When God places us in a season that's hard, what's our first immediate thought? Oh no, the righteous God must be punishing me. The righteous God must not be happy with me, right? That's instinctively, I think, where most of our gut reactions go to when God places us in a hard season of life. The season of singleness, of prolonged singleness, is a form of punishment. The season of financial hardship is some kind of punishment. The season of physical ailment is some kind of punishment. That's where our minds usually go to. Or at least we entertain that idea. Why? Because deep inside, I think we realize God's righteousness is not a source of rest for us. It's a source of anxiety. Why? Because we're sinful. And to sinners, God's righteousness does not bring peace. 
our other elder, Gray, pointed out a few times in his uh, previous sermons that it's interesting when you read the Bible and you see when men are confronted with God's righteousness, they didn't fall into peaceful rest. God didn't come and they didn't say, oh, God's righteousness is here. I can finally relax and trust him now. No. What did Adam and Eve do when they saw God's righteousness? They ran away and they hid. They're suspicious. They're scared. Is he going to hurt me? I'm sinful. He's righteous. What did Moses do? He trembled. What did Isaiah do when he saw God's glory in the temple? He said, away from me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And he's a prophet, mind you. If there's any part of his body that's clean, it's his lips. No, even that is unworthy. We tremble, we hide, we get scared when we see God's righteousness. Why? Because we realize we're sinful. We have a hard time trusting that God has placed us in hard seasons in life for our best interest because we realize deep inside that a righteous God doesn't owe sinners like us such benefits. If anything, his righteousness and his justice should lead him to punish a sinner like me. So how can I trust him? How can I trust him that the season of hardship he's placed me in is not an expression of his wrath, but rather of his love? Well, that's what we need to realize. If you want to be able to trust him in the various ever-changing hard seasons of our lives, our hearts must be convinced not only of his righteousness, but also of his love. A wise man lets God narrate because they trust in his righteousness and point three, realize that they are loved. Last point. See, unlike Solomon's attitude here in verse 18 to 22, the Bible gives us an assurance of how God will treat the soul of the believer. At the end of chapter 3, Ecclesiastes, verses 18 to 22, Solomon becomes a, big, a bit agnostic, okay? meaning that he becomes uncertain about what's going to happen to the soul of man. Verse 18 to 20 talks about how both man and beast, which are animals, are going to die, and they're all just going to return to the dust. True. But then he says in verse 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. At the end of verse 22, who can bring him to see what will be after him? He chalks it up to ignorance. But see, the New Testament gives the Christian a different hope. Things are not as uncertain as Solomon makes it out to be. We know exactly what will happen to those who have received Christ as Lord and Savior. The New Testament says, I put two verses up there. 2 Corinthians 4.14, this is your fate. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus Christ will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. You will be raised up in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 54-55. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death. Where is your sting? It is clear what's going to happen to the soul of the Christian after you die. You will be with God forever. But the question is, how can that be? How can sinners like you be with God and me be with God forever? If God is righteous and just, we just read, he'll bring every deed into judgment. And I'm a sinner who, for the most part, tries to narrate my own life story, disobeying his commands. How can Paul in the New Testament and the whole New Testament be so confident that our souls will be with God after our time under the sun? Why aren't they as agnostic as Solomon is? Because, friends, they know that there was a righteous man, Scripture says. 
who was condemned in our place. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 17 says, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, yet Jesus Christ, the perfectly righteous man, he was crucified as if he was wicked. Why? Why is that? Because it wasn't his wickedness that he died for. It was ours. He was crushed for. Jesus, the righteous one, was condemned in our place so that we who are wicked may be counted as righteous before God. Jesus Christ was born into this world to face one main season, marked by a cross. And like a lamb led to the slaughter, he didn't fight back. He didn't kick and scream against the Father as the Father turned the pages, slowly getting him closer to that season of the cross. He didn't try to get out of that season. He said, let your will be done. And he climbed right up to that cross to die the death that you should have died and paid the justice we deserved. So now, Christian, through his blood, your fate isn't as uncertain as Solomon makes it out to be in verses 18 to 22. It is assured you will be raised up with Christ, your God and your Redeemer. You see, what the cross does is that it assures you God is on your team. He's not only righteous, he also loves you beyond degree. He died for you for crying out loud. And this season that he's put you in, it may be hard. It may be insanely challenging. But look at the cross where he paid for the requirement of righteousness that you failed to meet. He loves you. Look at the cross. If he loves you that much, then surely the season you're in now, as hard as it may be, was not placed upon you because he hates you or because he's punishing you. All your sins have been paid by himself on that cross. If he's placed you in a season of singleness and you don't want to be there and you're tempted to break his laws to get out of it, don't. Don't. Endure. Look at the cross. He loves you. He's placed you there because of love. If he's placed you in a season of financial difficulty and you're tempted to break his laws to get out of it, don't. Don't trust him. Look at the cross. He loves you. Even through the season of financial difficulty, he has your best interest in mind. Look at the cross. Whatever season of life he's ordained you to be in, instead of trying to narrate your own life, look upon the cross and trust him. The righteous one has taken the full measure of God's wrath upon himself so that you may no longer need to be suspicious of him. And you can have full confidence in God. Whatever season of life he's placed you in, it's not because he hates you. There is no drop of wrath left. Jesus drank it all for you. True that it may not seem like he has your best interest in mind during these hard seasons of life, but the Christian who knows the cross of Christ knows that's never true. He always has our best interest in mind. Because my sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. I bear it no more. And the more you're convinced of his cross, the more you'll be convinced he loves you. The more you're convinced he loves you, the more you'll trust him in the seasons he's placed you in. And the less you're going to try and narrate your own stories and the more you're going to worry about obeying him through every single chapter. You're not the author of your own life. Jesus did not die for you so that he may empower you to take charge of your life. He did not. He died for you so that he may redeem you and be king over you and rule your life so that you may trust him through every mountain high. 
and valley low. So here is wisdom. Stop spending your life trying to write your own story, the wise man says. You can't. Spend your life trusting and obeying him who turns the pages and has written every chapter. The first place the fool looks to is himself. And the first question the fool asks is, how can I get out of it, even if I need to break his laws? But the first place a wise man looks to is the cross. And the first question a wise man asks is, how can I obey him through this season? Be wise. Let God turn the pages and obey him through every chapter. That's the wisdom in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Let's pray. Father, forgive us that for the most part, we want to be God over our lives. We want to decide what season to be in. We want to live in the seasons that we're not yet in. We want to dial back seasons that's already been gone. And we don't trust you. We don't trust your righteousness. And we don't trust your love for us. We're suspicious of you. But yet, Father, help us look upon that cross and say to our souls, he loves us and he's good. And though this season may be hard, I need not worry to get out of it if the only way to get out of it is by breaking his commandments. If I've done everything and I can't get out of it, then Father, help us be content in it and not refrain to breaking your laws, but rather obeying your word every step of the way and trust that a righteous and loving God who showed his righteousness and love to me on that cross will never abandon me, for my sin has been paid, not in part, but the whole, on the cross, and I bear it no more, and now before me lies mercy and love and grace after grace. Let us trust that as we walk through this complicated, life-changing seasons, and trust you, our God, our Redeemer, our Narrator. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.